the opportunity to gather here together and to learn more about what it means to become disciple makers and to follow your model and your method for reaching the lost and uh, training and equipping them uh, so that they can be sent back into the world. Lord, we pray this evening that our hearts would be open, that our minds would be free of distraction. Uh, All the things that are waiting for us, the chores that are waiting for us, the work that's waiting for us, Lord, would we be able to focus our attention on you and what you have to say to us tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Grateful for all you guys being here tonight. If you're looking for a pen, you brought something to take notes on, um, then those pens are right there on your seats just like they are on Sunday morning. Uh, At this time, I'm going to invite up Brandon Gindin. I'm going to let him do his own introduction because I may miss some important things, but uh, he's he's, uh, one of the reasons why we're here tonight because the elders came across a book, um, actually a number of books by... uh, by Brandon and the team that he's a part of. Uh, one of those is called Real Life Discipleship. And um, so it is uh, an honor to have him here tonight. And I hope you guys can stay awake longer than you do when I speak. Um, I know you got full bellies, but hopefully we can stay awake. And uh, Excellent, excellent. Stephen, we have his mic on. We good? We good? That was a yes. That's, That's awesome. a yes. All right. You guys give Brandon a hand. Uh, before, what do I need to do? Scoot back? We good? Well, before we get started, um, what I'd like to do is just pray. Pray again and um, go to the Lord. And actually, before even I do that, what I want to do is just take a moment. And um, we do something in our church all the time. And I do this with a lot of my small group leaders. And I know life is crazy and hectic and There's distractions and all those kinds of things. And so what I'd like to do is just take a moment, and I'm going to do something I call directive prayer. And just um, have everybody just close your eyes, and we're just going to kind of be quiet for a minute and just uh, kind of bring ourselves before the Lord, prepare our own hearts. Uh, Maybe today you um, just struggled today, or maybe there's a lot of distractions, and you just need to come before the Lord and say, God, I'm here, I'm yours speak to me. Um, Holy Spirit, speak to me. And so I just want to give you a moment and, and to just spend a second with the Lord and then I'll pray for us. Lord Jesus, we uh, come before you tonight, and God, we submit our hearts, our minds to you, and um, Lord, uh, you are the author, the perfecter of our faith, and God, we submit ourselves to you. And Lord, into the authority of your word and to the direction of your Holy Spirit, and God, tonight, that you would be the teacher, that I would get out of the way, that you would guide my words, and you would work in the hearts of each person here. And then we would discuss the things of your kingdom, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Coming off of a horrible, nasty vocal cord infection. I didn't even know that was possible. And so my my voice gets a little raspy once in a while, so I apologize for that ahead of time. Appreciate the grace on that. Um, Discipleship, we're going to talk about that a lot. And what is that? And what does it look like? And... And we're going to process through it. But I want to give a little bit of background 
um, to you of who the heck is this, this guy, um, why is he here, and hopefully you know a little bit. Um, <clears throat> my name is Brandon Gindon. I um, am, not, am not a native Texan, um, but what's really kind of cool about it is I grew up in a state, actually two states, that have a lot of the same mindset of, of Texas, similar. That's Idaho, very conservative, very um, uh, don't touch my stuff, and I know who I am, and I don't need you telling me what to do. Um, and so the, Idaho is very um, uh, rebellious uh, group of folks. Um, people that live in Idaho live in Idaho because they don't want to live anywhere else, um, and they would rather that you didn't live there with them. Um, <clears throat> Idaho is one of the most unchurched states in the United States. Um, the entire Pacific Northwest is very unchurched. So I grew up in that. I also spent part of my life living in Alaska, which is even worse. Um, there, the, if you live in Alaska, you live in Alaska for a very specific reason, and you don't want anybody else living in Alaska. Um, my dad flew bush pilot in Alaska. I did some crazy things by the time I was 11 years old. Um, I shot my first moose. I shot a caribou. I caught king salmon on the Kenai River. Been on a float plane. Been all over that state and crazy things. Um, had an interesting childhood growing up. But I did not grow up in the church. Um, had a great family. Um, my grandfather um, <clears throat> flew down here on uh, Thursday, surprised us a week ago, uh, a week ago this last Thursday. And he... Um, is 87 years old, and he called me up um, on Wednesday, and he said, I'm flying down there, um, even though I might die bef- between here and there, but I'm coming down because it was my daughter's birthday, and he said, I'm not missing her birthday. I'm coming. So he's, um, he's been here, and, and uh, a great man. He was a superintendent of the mill in town for 47 years, and he's a blue-collar, hard-working guy, and it's the family I grew up in, but we did not grow up in the church. And so when I went into college, I went into college not knowing or understanding anything about the church. One of my good friends took me to youth group a few times, and I walked forward, and I prayed a prayer, and I did that several times, and no one explained anything to me. And then I went to college and dealt with a lot of tragedy. Two of my best friends were killed. A third friend committed suicide. I dealt with death after death after death through my entire four years of college. I went to college to play football and throw shot put, and I was injured really bad, had a really bad back injury in college, and my sports career was over, and God was doing everything he could to pair and peel everything out of my life to get my attention, and he had it. And I gave my life to the Lord and began following him, but I started to go to this really weird thing called church, and it made absolutely no sense to me. And I'd walk in, and people would do things I didn't understand, and they'd sing songs that made no sense to me. And I was the unchurched. I was the guy that you all try to go after, I hope. And as I came into it and interacted with it, and still to this day, the Lord has allowed those memories to be very fresh in my mind of what that felt like to walk into churches. To this day, when I walk into any church anywhere, whether I'm traveling and training leaders, if I'm in, in Africa or if I'm in South America, wherever I'm at, anytime I walk into the church, I always wrestle with, I don't feel like I belong there. Still to this day, being a pastor and everything, I still wrestle with it. So I did not grow up in the church. And when I gave my life to the Lord and I started following him and God called me into ministry, when I started reading the Word of God and spending time in the Word of God, I drove Jim Putman, the senior pastor at Real Life in Post Falls, crazy. 
Because I would say to him, why does the church do these things? And I understood sports way better than I understood church. And I understood that that, that, that you need to be a team and you need to work together and you need to get along and you need to fight for the same goal and you need to... We're losing in the church. I don't know if you know that or not, but we are. Church in America is losing influence daily, rapidly. We, we do have a problem on our hands. But as I said, I, I didn't grow up in the church. And as I continued into ministry at Real Life Ministries in Post Falls, we got to see the opportunity to see God do something and continue to do an absolute miracle. In a little town, my hometown, called Post Falls, Idaho, of about 12,000 people, the entire county that I'm, that I'm from has about 100,000 people in it. Most all of them unchurched. Never have even stepped foot in a church before. We got to see this little small church go from 10 people, 20 to 100, to 500, to 1,000, to 3,000, to 5,000, to 8,000. <clears> Seeing five and 700 baptisms a year seeing one of the largest recovery ministries in the nation. Um, I got to be a part of <clears throat> building this, the, one of the largest small group systems in, in, in the United States. When I left RLM, we had about 650 small groups that were meeting all throughout the county and homes and all over. And we planted seven churches, and, and the church that we just planted in Tomball, I'm the eight, number eight. And we got to watch God do some amazing things. And along the way, churches would go, what in the world are you guys doing? Or typically we were accused internally within the church, oh, they must be compromising the gospel. That's the only way to grow a church today is compromise the gospel. And I hopefully you hear over the next three days that it's quite opposite of living out the gospel and teaching the gospel and bringing together Jesus' methodology with his message. And when that happens, you see some pretty incredible things happen. And so I got the opportunity to watch that and watch God grow the church and see some pretty incredible things. And I'll tell you, you get to know me, I, I'm nothing special. Um, there's no fantastic things that I'm going to wow you with. Um, and RLM, is, as Jim Putman would say, is full of a bunch of rockheads anyway. We all are, and God just did an incredible work and continues to. The great thing about that is if I'm sure if I get to know all of you in here, there's several rockheads in this room too. Jesus right, specializes in using us boneheads and rockheads to get the work done, doesn't he? Praise the Lord for that. And so what I want to begin the discussion, and it is a discussion because we're going to talk about it, is we're going to look at this big picture principle in Scripture called discipleship, being a disciple. What is it? And what does it look like? And, and, and how do we live this out? And, and, and how do we make disciples? And this whole principle of what is winning in the church. I've already had several discussions tonight about things in the church, and, and it's fascinating to me of in the church corporately and even globally of what the church views the win is. I know I go to all the conferences. I speak at lots of conferences, and you hear pastors talking and the pressure around numbers or butts and seats and finances and buildings and all that stuff. And, and, and that's, part, that's part of it. It should be a byproduct more than the goal. But to ask this question is, what is winning in the church? And we're going to look at that. So I want to tell you a quick story. 
I am, I am a storyteller. I love to tell stories. And unfortunately, for those of you that don't like, you don't like sports or don't like hunting, then you probably won't like any of my, my stories because I don't have too many other ones than that. Okay? <clears throat> well, growing up in, in Parton, Alaska, in northern Idaho, my dad was a big hunter, and um, I followed in his steps, and I was a bow hunter. I loved to bow hunt. Um, I'd bow hunt anything. And <clears throat> we were big time in... I lived right in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, and so we elk hunted. And that's what I grew up doing. And one day, we were headed out hunting, and this time, actually, we were rifle hunting. And we were going to take my uncle with us, and my uncle had invited the boy next door that did not have a dad. He was like a senior in high school, and he wanted to take him, and that's cool. That's great. So we all load up in, in my dad's vehicle, and we all head out hunting. It's like 3 in the morning. It's dark. This kid, he and I are sitting in the back. My uncle, my dad are in the front seats, and we're driving. I think we're in a Suburban or something. And so we're headed out to go hunting. And we're getting closer to there, and I look over, and I see this, this, this guy. He, he takes his, his gun out of his scabbard, and it looked kind of small, looked kind of different, but I really, it was dark. I really couldn't tell. Now, how many of you know what an elk is? Right, Rocky Mountain bull elk, like like they weigh like standing on the hoof, like eighteen hundred pounds. They're a big animal. Okay, well, that's what we're hunting. All right, <clears throat> well, not eighteen hundred. That's a little big. There's some big ones out there though. Let's say a thousand pounds, fifteen hundred, somewhere in there, big ones. Okay, so we go out <clears throat> and uh, we get out of the truck and it's getting light. This beautiful, perfect fall morning in Idaho, and we start walking away from the truck. My dad and I, we head this way. My uncle and this other guy head this way, and we're hunting down through the timber. And I come up on top of this ridge, <clears throat> and I hear down below me in the woods, Psh! was that a gunshot? What in the world was that sound? Psh! I hear it again. What is going on? Psh! I hear it again. And then I hear, I got one, I got one. I'm like, what in the world? So I go running over there, and I go down to the timber, and he yells again, I got one, I got one. He's so excited. And I walk over and look, and the kid lifts up a squirrel. And he was so excited. I wanted to shoot him because our morning's ruined. We're done hunting. All this racket and stuff he had made. And I think about that story, and I remember, and I go, that is church in America. We all set out in this direction on what we're supposed to do, and, and we don't know what the win is. See, he thought it was squirrel hunting. He thought it was shooting anything. I thought it was that we need to go shoot an elk. We had different goals. And in the church, we have people all the time that go, that don't know what we're hunting for. What are we called to do? What are we called to make? What, are, what did the king ask us to do? The king asked you and I to do one thing. What did he ask us to do? Go make disciples. I want you to think about that for a moment. That command, that request by the king, king, Jesus is king of what? Everything. King of the universe. Did he create all things? Are all things held together by, by him? Is all authority in heaven given to him? How big is Jesus? Right? So he asks us to do one thing, one, one big thing that has lots of parts to it, but one big thing, doesn't he? I want you to think, how much has the church perf- tried to perfect that one thing? We don't even know what it is. 
If I asked you all right now, I said, everybody right now, define a disciple. Write it down. Write the definition. How many people are in this room? 65-ish? And maybe you guys have done a great job. And maybe it's very clear on what the definition is. But most churches I go to, if I ask that question, I tell them to write it down, I'll get 65 different answers. Well, I think it's this. Well, I think it's that. I think it's this. It should be this. It should be that. And we don't really know. But the king's asked us to go make one. Well, if we don't know what it is or what we're hunting and what we're shooting for, then you may think it should be this and you're hunting squirrels and you over here are hunting hogs and you're hunting elk and you're taking a walk in the park and don't have a gun. My goal is just to be out in the woods today. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a language and definition and understanding issue. I want all of you to write this down. Just write it down. Even if you're not a note taker, humor me tonight and write this down. <clears throat> Discipleship is not what I do. It's who I am. Discipleship is not what I do. It's who I am. Discipleship is not what I do. It's who I am. See, now, Jesus gave us a command to go do something, yes. But disciple-making has to come from a place of who you are. It's not a curriculum, although we use curriculum. It's not a sermon series, although we can use sermon series. It's not a class, although classes are fine. Disciple-making based on how Jesus modeled it for his 12. When was he ever not discipling? Was Jesus ever not discipling? Now, you, now, I have some that are very staunch about it and say, well, he wasn't discipling when he was sleeping. Okay. He wasn't discipling when he was off alone praying. Uh, he was modeling some pretty healthy things. See, when discipleship becomes disciple-making, being a disciple, following Jesus, and teach people to follow Jesus is optional. It becomes optional when it's not who we are. Then it's just this optional thing. Oh, you're one of those radical Christians that's actually being a disciple and actually following Christ. Is there any other type of Christian in Jesus' mind? See, we've adopted a mindset because of the gospel that we kind of tend to think about is that discipleship is optional. If we want to be kind of nerdy and educational about it, Jesus gives these incredible declarative statements about the gospel. And along with those statements, there are incredible commands that Jesus gives of obedience that starts with what? Following. And what it looks like to follow. See, what winning is in the church is us being a disciple and making disciples because that's what the king told us to do. That's what we're hunting. Anything outside of that, we are wasting our time. Would you agree with that statement? Are there good things that we can do in the church? Yes. Wonderful things. 
But if we can do something at church and look at it and go, that does not equal disciple making and it doesn't lead to helping people grow up in, in, in being a disciple, then why are we doing it? You following me? Because Jesus gave a very, very clear command and it was carried on in, we see throughout the rest of the New Testament. It was carried on in the early church. It can, has continued to carry on. That's why we're all here today, isn't it? One of the greatest things I come across, <clears throat> excuse me, in the church today <clears throat> with pastors as I ask this question, or they ask me, how do you make a disciple? I have a Bible college degree. I went to Bible college. Some of you have masters or, or even doctorates. They'll say, I've never been discipled. I don't know how to make a disciple. It's the number one question I get asked when I work with pastors. I don't know how, never have been, and I don't know what it looks like. How in the world could we ever be healthy in our churches if even our pastors don't know how to make a disciple? Remember I made the statement, our churches are struggling today. We're losing influence. Why? Because somewhere along the way, the church bought into the notion that the church was called to make converts not disciples. Nowhere in here, nowhere, does it say that we're called to make converts. We're called to make disciples. Conversion is just simply part of the process, isn't it? And in the church, we tend to view the finish line and we absolutely should celebrate it. Absolutely celebrate every person that comes to know and place their faith in Jesus Christ. But we kind of tend to treat that as the finish line, don't we? Once they've crossed that line, woohoo! Hand them a Bible. Next, we move on. But when we look in the life of Christ, is that the picture that we see? What did he do for three and a half years? Why spend three and a half years with those guys? Have you ever thought about that? Why spend three and a half years? What was he doing? That's a long time. How many of you have led small groups? How many of you are leading small groups right now? Man, three and a half years with the same group? Oh my goodness. That feels like an eternity, doesn't it? You spent three and a half years with those guys. Why? What was he doing? What was he doing? Discipling them. How much time did he spend with them? A lot of time. Tremendous amount of time. What was he doing? What was Jesus doing for three and a half years with almost every hour of the day with these 12 guys? What was he doing? Modeling and teaching. Absolutely. Great answer. What else was he doing? Building relationships. Why would he need to build relationships? That's the key to making a disciple. It's the glue that holds the whole process together. I'm going to talk about this on Sunday. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. If you're taking notes, you want to write that verse down. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. What was the first crisis in Scripture? What was the first crisis we see? Huh? Man was alone. Very good, Pastor. 
Man was alone. First, first crisis, right? God's creating says it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. It is not good. The man is alone. Well, was Adam alone? No. Sin had not entered the world. He's in walking in perfect relationship with God. He has everything he needs. So it would seem. But just before that, it says that man is created what? In God's what? Image. Do you understand that God put a part of himself in every single one of you? And a piece of that, of, of, of God, is, is part that God is, is relational? That there's a trinity? That the very nature of God is relational? And when he looked at Adam and he said, you cannot experience of what I intended for you without Eve. It's not good that you're alone. Once the fall happens, what does the fall do? It creates what? Separation, which implies what? Aloneness. Every problem we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament has to deal with that garden issue, doesn't it? Relationship is the key through the entire Old Testament. Well, maybe once Jesus came, maybe that all went away. What does Jesus say when they come and ask him, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? What does Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all what? And the second is what? What do you do? Love your neighbor as yourself. How many commandments did they ask for? One. How many does Jesus give? Two. Why? Because the Lord does not separate loving Him and loving others. They're intimately woven together. We're going to look at a bunch of those passages on Sunday. It's intimately woven together. So now what has the church done with disciple making as a whole? Big C, I'm talking about this church. You guys have all been in different churches. What do we typically do in the church? Is relationship woven into the process? It's not, typically. You may have experienced it different. But if we remove relationship and we remove Jesus' methodology, then can we win? See, we have to understand this. When we remove Jesus' methodology from disciple-making, we're going to get our results, man's results, not God's results. The problem that we see church-wide is this simple issue. The church has divorced the message of Jesus Christ from the method of Jesus Christ. And we have substituted in whatever method we think we want will work. When Jesus spent three and a half years intentionally, intensively modeling and walking and demonstrating over and over ad nauseum with these guys of what it looks like to make a disciple. And then for the church to come in and go, well, we're going to make a disciple however we want. That has got to be the most arrogant thing ever done on this side of heaven. Ready to throw me out of here yet? See, I think what we have to do is go back to and go, well, let's look and examine what Jesus did. What did he do? How did he do it? Jesus is the greatest discipler to ever walk the face of the earth, isn't he? 
then we should probably follow what he did. How did he do it? It's not about whether we do small groups or don't do small groups or whether we do this curriculum or don't do that curriculum or whatever. Set all that stuff aside. Take your churchy church hat off and just ask a question. How did Jesus make a disciple? I'm going to go do that. Here's what he did. Called a group of guys and did life with them. He challenged them. He stood in proximity to them so he could hear their crazy questions. He'd speak truth into their life and they'd have to wrestle with it. He told them stories, parables. He watched them interact with other people. He corrected them when they needed to be corrected. He challenged them. He encouraged them. He walked with them and he modeled with them on how to love people that were very unlovable. So we can call it small groups. We can call it whatever we want to call it. But at the end of the day, the methodology is what we're looking for. Does that make sense? I want us to turn to 1 Thessalonians. I want you to see a passage that was life transforming for me. And then we're going to go back and we're going to define a disciple. Turn to 1 Thessalonians. I got this new Bible. So like I've had the same Bible in ministry for 18 years and I just switched like uh, four months ago. Oh my gosh, I am like lost as a goose now with this. It, anybody else ever do that? And you're like, I know like where everything's at, even like on the page and then you change. And Anyway, so it screws me up. First Thessalonians um, chapter one in verse three, or I'm sorry, we'll go to two. It says, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became what? Became what? Imitators, right? Everybody everybody else say that? Imitators or imitating, okay? Imitators of us and of the who? The Lord. For you receive the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Here's the Thessalonian church. They were facing tremendous persecution in the Roman Empire. They were one of the greatest, most persecuted churches. It was brutal being a Christian there. But what happened was their church continued to grow and explode to the point to where Paul says, you're the, you're the model. You're the example to the rest of the world of how it should be done. He commends them for their, their stick to in the face of persecution. You guys are the model church. You've become the example. Well, what is it that they had done? They imitated. Imitated who? Who were they imitating? Come on. The Lord. Well, where did they learn to imitate the Lord from? 
Where did they see it? Many of them were not with Jesus. This is second, third generation. Paul. Paul and the guys that came to them lived it out. We're going to see this in chapter 2. Guys, listen to me. The, The church does so much work trying to innovate something new. Please, let's imitate something old. We don't have to come up with some brand new fancy idea. All we have to do is look in the scripture and go, let's all agree to do our best to live out what Jesus calls us to do. If we want to influence our area, we want to be a a light in this community, I, I would assume that this church, that's what we're trying to do, right? Amen? So that people look at this place and go, whoa, those people are different. How do we do that? We imitate who? Christ. We imitate Christ. Not just in the gospel, but we actually live the gospel out. Discipleship is not what you do. It has to be who you are. Moms and dads, it has to be in the home, doesn't it? We disciple our kids. We disciple our neighbors, the people that God's put in our path. Now, is everybody going to accept that? Is everybody going to sign up to be discipled? How'd that work for Jesus? Did everybody follow? Did everybody stay with him? In fact, what did he say about it? Narrow would be what? What's narrow? The way, right? The path. He wasn't, part of that is salvation, but part of it he's talking about just following him. Following Jesus in today's culture is not easy. And it wasn't easy for them either because you got killed for it. But discipleship has to become who you are. I am a disciple and I learned to make a disciple because that's what the king told me to do. Ooh. What does that mean for me? What do I have to change? What would I have to let go of? Ugh. That might be a hard, some hard conversations, right? The right conversation might be a hard conversation. But I'll tell you what, when 12 guys committed to it, and really it was 11, what happened to the world? What happened to the world? Did they change the world? You're darn right they did. So you got to see this area in Post Falls, Idaho, Kootenai County of 100,000 people that's full of heathens and derelicts and drug addicts and hunting addicts and crazy people. The entire county radically changed in about 10 years. I had to watch it happen. It wasn't about special leaders. We just tried to do the best we could to follow what Jesus said to do when making disciples as best we possibly could. And we didn't get it right, and you're not going to always get it right either. That's okay. But we have to first def- we have to first decide, I'm all in. I have to be a disciple, and I have to learn to make a disciple. And that's what your pastor's committed to. And let me just tell you something. I get to travel a lot and work with a lot of churches and a lot of pastors. I got to speak at Exponential in, in, in Orlando uh, in, in February. 
at a room of 600 pastors and church planners we're working with and talking to. I'm telling you, to have a pastor that's committed to this and all in on it is rare. And you guys should hug that man and his wife. Because it's rare. It's wonderful. Because you're talking about the right thing and you're trying to figure out the right thing. And numbers are numbers. and that'll. But if this group of people says, I'm all in. I'm committed to this. I'm committed to being what the king called me to do. Whatever that looks like, I'm going to figure it out. And we do it together. You can't stop that. You can't stop it. I'm telling you, because the word of God promises you can't stop it. I want to read something to you. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus tells you that you can't stop it. Matthew 16. Anybody ever been to Israel? We got any Israel people in here? Awesome. When you guys went to Israel, did you did you get to go to Caesarea Philippi? Up in the north, did you get to go there? It's fantastic. Jesus is getting towards the end of his ministry in Matthew <clears throat> chapter 16. He takes his disciples up to an area in northern Israel called Caesarea Philippi. He takes them there. Remember, is Jesus always discipling? Is he intentional? He didn't just take them there because he felt like walking up into this obscure place. Took them for a very specific reason. He took them to Caesarea Philippi because at Caesarea Philippi is a, was a, at the time, was a temple there. And that temple was on the side of a mountain. And at the side of that mountain is where the headwater of the Jordan River comes out of the mountain. It's a really cool place. It's literally the Jordan comes right out of this rock. Well, a pagan religion built a temple there. And what they used to do in those days is they would take their children, their firstborn, and there's this big, deep cave, and they would bring it and they would sacrifice their firstborn child to the god of Pan. And they believed in their religion that if the child screamed, then Pan accepted their gift. This is the time of Jesus. And if the child did not scream, then they had to sacrifice their nextborn child. And on it went. It was horrific. The temple was called the gates of hell. That's what it was called. That's what they called it, the gates of Hades. So Jesus takes his disciples up there and he sits down. And in Matthew chapter 16, he asks them a very important question. What was the question he asked them? You remember? Who do you say... Who do you say, right? Who do you say that I am? Right? Remember that question? Who do you say that I am? Oh, we got it up there. Fantastic. Excellent work back there. You get a gold star. He says, who do you people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? I'm not talking about everybody else, boys. I'm talking about you. What do you say? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, are Peter, and on this rock I will build what? Huh? My church. My church. Now we all... 
I think, believe in here that it was on the confession that Peter made that it's built upon, that he is the Messiah, right? He's going to build my church. And what will happen here? Build my church and what? The gates of hell. Oh, he's sitting right in front of this temple. He's giving them a visual illustration. He's saying, guys, if you don't choose me, this is what the choice is. You don't follow me, this is what the world leads you to. It's this incredible illustration. And the gates of hell will not prevail against what? Against my church. So let me ask you a question today. When we look in our country, are the gates of hell prevailing against the church? Interesting. I would agree. Others pockets. God's always at work in spite of us, isn't he? People's lives are being changed because the Holy Spirit will do it just because that's what he does. When we look and we already established and we say, is the gates of hell prevailing? Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Jesus very clearly said, the gates of hell will not prevail against what? My church. So was Jesus crazy? Doesn't know what he's talking about? Or maybe somewhere along the way, the church kind of, big C church in some ways, kind of stopped being his church. Maybe he's having to work in spite of us. Maybe we stop doing things his way. Does the Lord kind of tend to do that with us when we want to do things our own way and we want to control it and the Lord will go, okay, let's see how that works for you. Anybody ever lived in that boat? It's a lot of fun, ain't it? Good luck. We'll see how that works for you. I think the Lord's doing that with us right now. How's that working for you? The church. I don't know what you guys are doing over there, but when you figure out that that isn't working, here's where I'm going. So follow me. We want to be his church. Well, if we're going to be his church, then we have to take the message of Jesus Christ and put it back to the method of Jesus Christ, which means we have to imitate what he did. That's what we're commanded to do. When he told the disciples to go into the world and make disciples, they knew exactly what that meant. They just watched it for three and a half years. So they go out and live it out within the world around them, regardless of persecution. Turn back to 1 Thessalonians and look at what Paul says. Verse 5, 2, 5. 1 Thessalonians 2, 5 through 8. It says, For we who test our hearts, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext of greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Verse 8, you Bible underliners, underline this. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very what? Lives. Not only did we share the message 
of Jesus Christ. We shared the method of Jesus Christ. We came and lived the gospel with you. It's right there in front of us. It says we came and lived it. You saw it. We weren't trying to impress anybody. We didn't care what anybody else thought. We came and lived it with you. You saw it, and then you took it, and you've been imitating it. And because you're imitating it, God's blessing it, and the whole world's changing. In the midst of severe persecution, it's still going on. It's exploding. The Thessalonian church changed that whole region of the world. In fact, some historians believe because of what came out of Thessalonica is ultimately why the Roman Empire fell to Christianity. These guys were getting it done because they were imitating, following the work of the Holy Spirit and living out what Jesus told them to do. Look what Paul says at the end of that chapter. He says, uh, let's see, verse, he says in verse 9, he says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. While we proclaim to you the gospel of God, you are witnesses. And God also, um, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward, toward you believers. They were living it out. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He says, you became our very crown. He says, you guys were our crown. You were our reward. What was their reward? That they'd made them into disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what the crown is. And so I want to give you this question. We're going to, we're going to process it. You're going to discuss this. I don't know how we do this. You're going to kind of circle up and Talk about it. I want you to answer this question. What keeps you, what keeps you from being a disciple maker? What gets in your way? What blocks it? What gets in the way? Is it fear? Is it doubt? Is it busyness? Is it what is it in your in your life that keeps you from being a disciple maker? What distracts you? Maybe you're, maybe you're doing a great job. But you're discipling five people right now. Well, I promise you, you have things that get in the way. What is that? I want you to write that down. I want you to talk about it. Because the next question is, how could we help each other with that? How could I help you with that? How could we help each other with that? That roadblock or that issue. Is that clear as mud? Clear as mud, we all got it. So let's just take like, 10 minutes. So kind of in your little areas, turn your chair around or kind of face person or something, groups of four or five, six of you, and discuss that question. Everybody got it? Got the question? What gets kind of gets in the way? And then how do we help each other? All right? Mark, set, go. Okay, okay. Here we go. All right, I want to I want to get get some feedback. I want to hear from some of you. What were some of the answers? Fear. Interesting. That's good. Fear. Okay. And what what was the one over here? Lack of 
Lack of confidence. Okay. Yes. Lack of education. Okay. What do you? Time. That's a bugaboo, isn't it? Time. What else? Frustration. Misaligned priorities. Okay? Just tired. I just need to take a nap. Yes. Amen. Thank you so much. So I'd love to, speaking of courage and fear, let's kind of venture out a little bit. Some may be willing to share. What's, what's something you know for you personally to overcome that? What would you have to do? Realign priorities. Okay? Thank you. Be more patient and less judgmental. I think Matt, Matt, where are you at? Matt, right? We were talking earlier today uh, before we started, and I said, um, I was just reading in the passage where it says, where Jesus groaned deeply within his soul. All right, like... (laughs) Like with the, with the, like, I'm like, what those guys were doing caused the Lord to groan deeply. Oof. Yes. Patience and more patience. Obedience. Ah, yeah, really good. Good. It does, it takes courage and, and, and obedience and willing to set some things aside and, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing that already. You guys just challenged in thinking in that. Um, I want to give you this, this piece, though, on the front. Um, you're going to hear more of this story. Um, I have, I'm married. I have four kids. I have two daughters and two sons. Um, my two daughters are 17 um, and just turned 16 three days ago. And then I have two boys that are both 13. No, they're not twins. They're four months apart. One is adopted from Ethiopia. Um, my two girls, since they were little itty bitties, um, have played fast pitch softball. And so I've had the opportunity to coach a lot of kids in hitting. I love the science of hitting and studying it. And one of the things that you teach little kids early on is slow is fast Fast is slow. Everybody that's note takers has to write this down because it's going to come into play later. Slow is fast. Fast is slow. Every dad or mom that I've had there alongside little Johnny or little Susie when they're learning to hit, they want to they hit as many as they can, as fast as they can, and they want it to look great and all these things. And I will work with a kid that's 9, 10, 11 years old, and the first two sessions, they're never allowed to hit a ball. And we're going to go really slow, and it drives the kid crazy, and and they want to just swing away and have fun and all that. But if you don't slow down, you develop really bad habits, don't you? And you're going to end up paying for those bad habits at some point. So if you learn right now in, in this whole pro- principle of disciple-making, you've understand this. Right now, for some of you, you've been discipling, and it's like, yeah, I have. I've been, I've been discipling some folks. I'm kind of learning this. Some of you, it's brand new. It's okay to go slow. 
we're not in a, in a, in a sprint. It's a marathon, isn't it? And I'm telling you, one day you got it right, and the next day you groan deeply and want, you want to smack everybody in your small group because you're sick of listening to them. It's just part of life. And it just takes time. And so giving yourself the grace, giving yourself the grace as a church body to say it takes time and the Lord's going to build it. Jesus spent how long with those guys? Long time. Took time. It takes time. It's okay. Be patient. Allow the Lord to work. The Holy Spirit, sometimes it takes, takes some work to get some people to move, doesn't it? So giving yourself some freedom to go slow, that that's okay. Um, but I'm telling you, when, when it starts happening and lives are changing and people are growing, then I've been on the other side of it. When it was growing so fast, I wanted, I wanted off the merry-go-round. It was nuts. 45 new families a weekend for months in a row. That has its own box of problems. Okay? So giving yourself patience. I appreciate the courage of sharing um, where you're at. I want to talk right now real quick to kind of take a step backwards and talk about the definition of a disciple. Remember I said at the beginning, what is the definition? If we were to write it down, we'd have probably a lot of answers. <clears throat> I want to go back and us define it. Now, you can go read in a Bible dictionary and it's going to give you the Greek word of methetes and it's going to give you what the Greek is and all that. Great, that's fine. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about if, if, if we look in the scripture and go, how would Jesus define it? And, you know, we don't know, but I look at it and in our church, we use the scripture to define it because I believe the definition is in the invitation. It's right there. So if Jesus said it and that's the invitation, then I, I'm good with it. That's good enough for me. And so I want us to look at that. And, and again, you guys may have your own definition. That's fine. A lot, your pastor and elders and I will talk about is you guys are getting really clear as a church on what is our definition. What is the animal we're hunting so that it's really clear and that our language is clear. And the importance of language and that language being clear is, is important for you as a church. And I'm going to tell you, some of you right now, you may go, oh, I don't like this word, or I'd rather have that word, or I'd rather this. Stop being normal churchgoers and worrying about color of carpet type stuff, right? And to go, no, look, it's, this is what we're going to go with, and let's all rally and go, look, we know what we're shooting for. And I can get behind that because it's biblical, and that's what we're trying to do. Amen? So when we first moved to Texas... I know I'm a, I'm a northerner and I'm learning to hear the right words. My daughters were playing softball and they were trying out for this club in Houston. And it's one of the, one of the big fancy clubs there and they go to practice. And my daughters run out on the field and they're out there and the coach goes, walks by. Now her accent, I, I don't remember where she was from, but it's thick. And she yells out to the girls. She said, y'all throw to y'all. And my daughter stood there holding the softball, go, what? And she goes, y'all throw to y'all. Emma, y'all throw to y'all. My daughter goes, what is she saying? And I'm going, what did she say? And she goes, Emma, play catch. Oh, play catch. Okay. So she threw the ball. And I've thought that's been my experience coming down to Texas. 
We use words. We know what they mean. We absolutely know what they mean. Oh, a disciple. I know what it means. But somebody else in the church defines it completely different or doesn't know what to expect. Or what do you mean by that? Because most of the time in the church, if I use the term discipleship, you just substitute in education, biblical education. In some churches, discipleship equals knowledge, head knowledge, Bible knowledge. Bible knowledge is great. We need to have Bible knowledge. But when we look in the scripture and we look at the process of discipleship, was discipleship in the scripture all about head knowledge? In fact, how much head knowledge did Jesus actually give? Like, I mean, like didactic to lecture style teaching. Very, very little. Some when he was by the shore, when he was on the teacher steps, he gave a little bit. You can even argue the Sermon on the Mount was not a, a, like we think of a sermon. He sat down to talk to his 12 and he had 3,000 eavesdroppers when you go read the story. And here's why he gave the Sermon on the Mount. He had just called Matthew. What was Matthew? Tax collector. Where did he collect taxes? Where at? Where, did, where, was, his, where was he located at? Huh? Where? Uh, yes, they brought him to the, to the temple. Where was he located? Do you know? Galilee. Who, guess who he collected taxes from? Do you know a group of guys that were fishermen from Galilee? Peter and Andrew. Tax collectors were lake breakers for the Romans. They were traitors. You should be executed. So here's what Jesus does. He's so brilliant. Hey, all right, boys, you want to follow me? That's great. Oh, we're going to go get Matthew. You're going to go get who? Come again? The guy that we hate more than any other human being on the face of this planet, you're going to bring him into our club? You're going to bring that guy into our small group? How dare you? Last night, I invited a woman into our group. She's been a lesbian for 22 years and is married and has a wife. I met with her and struggles with massive depression and dad just died and she doesn't know what to do. And she literally said these words to me. She said, I have a hole in my heart that I have no idea how to fill. Oh, she said, but I can't come to your church because you don't think homosexuality is okay. You're going to, and you guys will reject me. Is what she said. I mean, I've been sitting here talking to you for an hour. Did I reject you? She goes, no. So what did you experience when you and I were talking? Well, you cared about me. Hmm? But I don't agree, but I care. She goes, huh. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to come to my small group Thursday night. She goes, well, how can you let me do that? You don't agree with my lifestyle. So let's not worry about that. I said, I'm going to challenge you to go on a journey. You told me, here's what you said. You have a hole in your heart. You don't know how to fill. You're hurting and you're in pain. You don't know what to do. That's what you said, right? That's what I said. She's crying. I said, okay. So why don't you come to group? I said, if you feel rejected and not loved and not wanted, I said, you're free to leave. So that's not what's going to happen. She came last night. She sat. And she gave a prayer request. And she cried. She told our group that her dad just died. She doesn't know what to do, and she's struggling with depression. 
I watched our group love on her. She needs the gospel, doesn't she? That's the only solution. She needs the gospel. Jesus looked at Matthew and said, the only solution for you, Matthew, is me. In fact, what does he say in the house when he's at Matthew's house? What did he say? Only the sick, what? Need a what? Doctor. But the healthy don't need one. Who was Jesus talking to? Pharisees, wasn't he? Nah, Pharisees don't need one. You're all healthy. Only the sick need a doctor. He says, come on, boys, we're going to go have a talk. Walks up on the hill, sits him down. What's the first words he says to them? Blessed are those who are what? Poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to be completely, absolutely humble. It means to be completely aware that without Jesus Christ, I am, I'm terminally ill. He says the, they will inherit the kingdom. Where are people going to experience that kind of love? Because the world sure doesn't offer it, does it? Right? See, for Matthew, what was at stake was eternity. And Jesus pulls the 12 up on the side and he says, okay, let me talk to you boys. And he sits him down and he talks to him. Go read it. It's what he does. It's beautiful. And so when he calls them, he uses this very interesting phrase. He says to them, come follow me and I will what? Make you a fisher of men. Why did he use the term fisher of men? Because everybody understood that term. Even the tax collector understands that term. But isn't it interesting that Peter and Andrew and James and John, they had probably walking up the hill, already had contrived how they were going to knock Matthew in the head and throw him in the bushes or something. Right? And he sits them all down. And he says, no, blessed are those who are what? Poor in spirit. No, Peter, you're not going to punch Matthew in the head. You're going to love Matthew. Because you're terminally ill too, Peter. You're just like those Pharisees down there. Knock it off. I'm inferring into the scripture, but that's essentially the message behind what he's saying, right? You got to be poor in spirit. That's a starting place for us as disciple makers. When we understand our absolute terminal condition without Jesus Christ, and when we look at the people around us, we can look at a person like Coach Patty, when I look at her and go, why is it that in the church, her view before she ever even talks to anybody is you'll never, you'll never allow me in? Allow you into what? Our church service? Where in the world is she going to get healed? It's some self-help group? I mean, when we understand and we're poor in spirit and we lead, that's our first step out. Go, it's not my job to save her. My job is to just love her. And if she asks me, well, do you agree with this? No, I don't. But I love you. And our group will walk with you and care about you. 
and allow the Holy Spirit to do the work because isn't that who has to do the work anyway? I mean, last I checked, he's the one that has to change hearts, right? But when we understand this, and he said to them, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. The invitation, the definition is in the invitation. So what do we mean by that? The first thing for us is the definition of a disciple is what? To what? What does it say? Follow. To follow. See, the hard part in the church is what I was talking about earlier, is if all we do, we view them getting saved as the finish line. No, it's the starting line. That we preach the gospel message that includes part of the gospel is that you're following Jesus. In fact, Jesus would not separate. No, the gospel is you following me. It's not just believing a set of facts. That's part of it. But every single time Jesus calls you to follow. Well, what happens when people aren't following? Can a person be changed that is not following Jesus Christ? Oof, think about that for a little bit. That's a tough one. I think of Coach Patty. If she's following Jesus Christ, if she learns to follow, what's going to happen to her? She's going to be changed. That's God's job. I don't know what's going to happen. I just got to do my part. It's the same thing for you. And discipling people, I love what you said about having this courage and being obedient. All we have to do is be obedient with our part. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will what? Make you a fisher of men. So it implies, do we have those three up there? Let's put them all up there. There we go. A disciple is one who is following Christ, being changed by Christ, and on the mission of Christ. This is how it works in the discipleship process. How many of you are familiar with the wheel in the workbook? How many of you guys, most of you. Oh, awesome. So when we look at this, really, I mean, think about the wheel for a second. That is the definition. As a person follows and they become obedient, they begin to change. And as they change, they care about the mission of Jesus Christ. What is the mission of Jesus Christ? To make disciples. So my goal is not to just make a disciple. It's to what? Make a disciple that can what? make disciples. I think that's the language you guys use. It's fruit with seed in it, right? That's fantastic. I'm totally stealing that, by the way. It's great. It's very true. That's what we're trying to do. Is it a multiplication? I've told my kids this. I'm not successful in discipling you until you've discipled someone else. I said, and and that's not even it. It's when that person is discipling someone. Now I feel like I've succeeded. It goes beyond. And here's what's really great. We know discipleship is effective and working when it's went past you. It doesn't require you anymore. Does that make sense? So if I have a group of five guys and I'm discipling them, it's not good enough that they're discipling five more. It's when that generation is discipling the next generation because then it's not dependent on me. That's how the kingdom expands. And so when we understand the definition is following Christ, changed by Christ, on mission with Christ, I can take that definition and in all of my small groups, I can look at the men or women in the group and ask that question. This guides my conversation. Are they following Jesus? What does it look like? Do I see fruit? 
from them following? Are they being changed? I have this guy that's in one of my groups. He's in, he's in my everyone group, and he's in my men's group. His name's Greg Granger. Greg, was, he was supposed to come with me, and I was so bummed he didn't come on this trip because I wanted you all to meet him. Greg's like 6'5". He's from South Africa, and he's a rugby player. Well, he used to be. Now he's kind of all washed up, but he's a big dude. He's huge. I mean, he towers over me, and he comes into our, into our group. And how I met Greg was Hurricane Harvey. It was the first house we went to to go, to go mud out. He and his wife, Laura, are not believers. They'd never been in church in their lives. They were a little familiar with the Catholic Church in South Africa, but that was it. So I go, we, we, we take care of his house, and, and we get it all mucked out and all that stuff, and, and I build a relationship with Greg, and we start hanging out, and Greg's just, he's real quiet, real distant with me. And the more time we spend together, and the more time I'm in his world, the more time he's around other guys, and and now the guy, like, he's everywhere I go. Like, any event we have at the church, he's there. He's, he's cooking on the grill. He's, he's at every group that he can be a part of. God's completely, radically changing him. His wife came to me last Sunday, and she goes, I don't even know who I'm married to anymore. I go, well, I hope that's good. She goes, it's amazing. She goes, God is changing him. Like, it's incredible. Well, he started following Christ. And guys were walking with him. He's radically changing. And he's learning the scriptures at this incredible rate. He said to me the other day, he goes, I have a lot of work to do. I'm way behind. He's not learning that, not, again, hear me, I'm not saying Sunday school's bad. He's not learning that in Sunday school. He's learning that because it's applying right in where his life is at and he's watching it, living it, and being in it. Being a disciple is now who he is. Greg was at our small group last night. He said to me afterwards, he goes, do you think one day Laura and I will be able to lead a group? I said, sooner than you know, buddy. He goes, what does that mean? He goes, eh, sooner than you know. Right? So as we follow Christ and we're changed by Christ, we start to care about his mission. And that's when it begins to go beyond us. And when we look in the book of Acts, that's what we saw, or we witnessed, we read had occurred with these guys. They were with Jesus. They were following him. They're changed by him. But the truth is, they could not eventually be true disciple makers until what happened? What had to occur? Where did he go? He left. And obviously, the Holy Spirit comes and empowers him and empowers us to do it. But Jesus had to go and let him do it. I want you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 17. John 17, verse 4. John 17, verse 4. If somebody has it, raise your hand or something, because I'm going to have you stand up and read it out loud. You got it? You mind reading that? All right. Read 17, verse 4. Okay, read it one more time. No, I want them to make sure they hear it. Read it, read it real loud. Okay. 
So that is Jesus praying to the Father. So Jesus is saying, I brought you glory by completing. How many of you, some translations say finishing? I have finished. Some? Let me ask you a question. How can Jesus say that in this, he, this prayer is before he goes to the cross? says, Dad, I did what you told me to do. I finished it. Yeah, what was the work that he's talking about? Making disciples. See, discipleship, at the heart of of what that is, is them understanding about the kingdom of heaven and them understanding about the heart of God. And then he brought that to them. They now understood it. They They knew it more than they thought they knew. So now what could Jesus do? Go to the cross and institute the new covenant. See, the church focuses almost everything on the new covenant, which it's, hey, that's our salvation. It's great. We need to. Awesome. The cross is fantastic. Death, burial, resurrection. I'm not trying to take away from it. But let's, if we look at it and go, but what did Jesus spend the, the, the bulk of his life doing? And it was so important to him, he opens his prayer up to the Father. Dad, I did what you asked me to come do. Now I can go to the cross. And then he begins praying for him. Right? The rest of the, and then he prays for you and I. That, was, that mission was so important. When we look at the life of Christ, this is what he's doing. He's teaching them to follow and be changed and be on his mission. So when we look at our small groups, or even for us personally, we ask, what is it that we're trying to do? What are we hunting? We're hunting, the, the, the animal is a disciple, a person that's living this out. Not perfectly, but that's the direction we're going. Make sense? All right, I'm going to shift gears completely on you, because you guys are all like, whoa, like you've got this like, Thanks for the fire hydrant, dude. Look on your faces, okay? So here's what I want to do. I'm going to give you some questions. We're going to process it in a second. But I want to pause because some of you I know in this room are extroverts and your mouth is literally about to explode because you're like, I have to ask a question or I'm going to die. Right? So I want to just give you a moment. You're thinking about some of this. If you have a question you want to ask right now, go ahead. Now, you introverts are like, well, he didn't give me time to think. I need more time to think about a question. Um, we're going to do that at the end. Okay, so there's this little block right here. If you have a question, feel free to ask. If you don't, then I'm going to give you questions. Raise your hand. We'll bring the mic to you. Over here. <laughs> Steven, you're awesome. Good. Yes, everybody here. My question is what if what if you have somebody who has come to you with an interest? Um 
and then you're trying to meet and get into the word and there's always something on the other end that comes up so I just I don't want to like let it go or give up on it but it doesn't seem like there's a lot of effort mm -hmm. I don't know like what do you yep. do next okay so make sure let me make sure I captured your question correct okay the question is what do you do when a person shows some interest they've come to you you're putting the work and effort in to disciple them, to invest in them, but they're not really sticking with it or following through. Is that right? They're not really, they're not really committed to it or they don't really want to do it. Yep. Yep. So the question is when people aren't really that committed, they kind of talk about it, want to do it, and they don't, right? Okay. Um, <clears throat> so... Let's ask the question. Anytime these questions come up, let's ask, did Jesus ever deal with that? People talked about it, but then he said, oh yeah, well, why don't you, you know, it's going to take this and this, and why don't you take up your cross and follow me, or why don't you go sell this, or why don't you go leave that and to follow me? What, did he run into that problem? What was his response to that problem? Huh? Don't want to rock. Don't want to rock. I'm Oh. Yes. <laughs> Got it. I was like, what? Yeah. yeah, how did he deal with it? Did he deal with it? Yes. How did he deal with it? He challenged them? Yep. And then if they pulled away, they pulled away. He pulled away. So let me, let me, this is another note taker thing. You can write down. The greatest skill that you will learn as a disciple maker, the greatest skill outside of you reading your Bible and prayer. I'm not talking about spiritual disciplines. I'm talking about just a skill in disciple making. The greatest skill you will learn is you become a Jedi master question asker. Learn to ask great questions. Learn to ask great questions. And Lord willing, someday, and God works it out, and um, Charlie doesn't shoot me or something, um, we'll do a, um, I have this fantastic, fun training I do with small group leaders on um, listening and asking great questions. It's so much fun, and it's hilarious, and we have a great time. It's a little plug for something later. But learn to ask great questions. So it looks like this. I'll tell you when I had the conversation on Tuesday. What is today? Today's Friday, right? Tuesday, yes. So on Tuesday, I had a conversation with a guy I've been discipling for about four or five months. Okay. Um, hasn't come to group for three weeks. Right before that, he and his wife called me, hysterical, fighting on the phone. They literally put it on speakerphone and were fighting, and I'm listening to it. Okay? So we kind of got through that, and he said to me, and I knew this before, he struggles with a pot addiction. And he struggled in and out with it and some other drugs. And he's told me a hundred times I need to be in recovery. So I've told him, I'm not going to meet with you and your wife anymore until you go to recovery. Oh, absolutely, Brandon. You're right. That's, you're right. Great. Three weeks go by, doesn't come to my men's group. So I call him up 
And I said, hey, how's it going? It's great, man. It's so good. God, I've been in the Word. And I'm, okay. Um, are you, is anybody else in your life? Are you spending time with anybody? No, no. You haven't been at church for three weeks? No, I know, man. I've been busy. Okay. You haven't been at group? Yeah, yeah, no, no. You haven't been at, um, didn't come celebrate recovery? No, no. You know, but, but me and God, we're good. We're good. Hmm. So I asked this question. I said, Philip, I said, what's your expectation of me? And, you know, to be there and be there for me and be there. And I said, I can't do that. I said, would you like to know my expectation of you? Oh, I never thought about that. That's what he said. I said, would you like to know? Yeah, I guess you would. I guess, yeah, I guess I do. I said, okay, here's what I expect. If you're going to follow Christ and grow in your spiritual walk, I expect you to come to group and do the things that you told me you would do to follow through with your commitments. That's what I expect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See if he does, but I'm not going to spend any more time on it. Now, this has come from months of work at this. Just This just wasn't step one. But it's completely appropriate for all of you to ask questions. What's God doing with you? How's God growing you? What's he doing in your life? Tell me about it. Let me listen to what God's doing with you. And it's completely appropriate for you in that situation to go, um, help me understand, what's your expectations? And, and process it. And if, and if you can't fulfill that, oh, no, I, I, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. Oh, you mean there's actually a boundary? Yeah, that's healthy. We just, we live in a world within the church where I'm not saying be mean at all, but I'm saying, look, if you've got four other people that are like, man, I want to grow and go, I've got to spend my time there. And if this person doesn't want to go, just as what happened with Jesus, here's where we're going. If you want to go, fantastic. I will give you everything I got. Did that help? Hope that didn't. Does that sound harsh? Because that's not my heart behind it at all. There's a lot of history behind that one little story I was telling you. But sometimes we live in a culture today to where, wow, you actually set a boundary and told me I had to actually live up to a standard and do something and actually follow through on a commitment? Yeah, I did. Whoa, well, boy, that's kind of crazy. Okay. Another question. How are we doing on time? Oh, perfect. Um, how do I disciple to someone who's much older than me, like a student to a teacher relationship? Great question. Um, so in, in that situation, if, um, again, it, it goes back to asking good questions and um, asking how you can help, asking um, what can I, you know, what can I do to help you? What what questions are you looking for for the teacher? How can I, and just being there to serve and allowing them to dictate what, you know, what that they that they're looking for. Um, the, that's how this this coach ended up in our small group. So my daughter, the senior, has been 
basically, she doesn't even know it, discipling her all year. That's what brought her into the group. And so just continue asking questions and, yeah. Um, does, that, does that answer it? Yeah. Good question. Okay. Maybe one more. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna break you into groups again. You ready? Here's your question. What has been the most effective? What has been the most effective skill or thing that you have done to help someone follow Jesus? So, what has been the most effective skill thing that you have done to help someone follow Jesus? So you can kind of share those ideas. Okay? What's been the most effective skill, tool, thing that you have done to help someone follow Jesus? Okay? All right? Ten minutes in the group. Let's discuss it. Okay, okay. Are we ready? I didn't do a good job of giving you a one minute. All right, let's let's circle back. How'd we do? I'd love to hear some answers. What'd you come up with? Relationships. Great. Building trust with the person. Very good. Discernment. Excellent. Testifying. Great. Meeting them where they're at. Meeting them where they're at. Very good. Being patient. That's becoming a theme with this group. Good. Listening. Listening. Yeah. Very good. No. Well, kind of would te- uh, testify. That's kind of like testimony. Very good. Yeah. Really good. Any more? Being vulnerable. Yeah. Very good. Well, I'm sorry? Yes, get them involved. That's very good. That's very critical. You know, within the church, giving people an opportunity, we call it a place to play. Um, letting people be involved, especially in your groups, um, <clears throat> allowing other people to. Um, we use a method um, in our small groups called storing. Um, it's very, very effective for teaching the Word of God. It's very effective for memorization. And um, I was mentioning to you earlier about Greg. Before Greg ever gave his life to Christ, I had him tell the story. And he had memorized it word for word. And people think, wow, you had a non-believer? T- yeah, I did. I was there. And, and, and no heresy, crazy things happened. We, we survived and made it through. And it was life-changing for him. He was like, wow, I can learn the Bible and I can learn this. And it was great. And, and he and his wife have uh, been involved with, with the group ever since. 
So it's, it's a great methodology. We can talk about that more. It's in the workbook at the end of the workbook, that methodology. So, all right, I want to do something. I want to, um, <clears throat> actually, we're going to create a list. We're going to kind of shift gears off of um, disciple making and kind of talk about some of the components. Um, as you guys know, those of you that have been through the workbook, um, <clears throat> we talk a lot of times about there's five key components to a disciple making church. Um, there's, there is, but we're going to really look at four between tonight and all day tomorrow. And the first one that we're going to look at, um, I'm going to, is, is called a relational environment. And what is a relational environment? So here's what I want to do. I want to put it back out to you guys and let's do this. Let's describe that environment, the relational environment that Jesus created. So when we think of the life of Christ, when we think of what he did with his 12, let's try to imagine for a minute we're there, we're with him in, in that environment that he created. Give me maybe just kind of one word answer, one or two word answers, and we're actually going to generate a list. So just let's popcorn them out here. I want to hear them. Proximity. So the relational environment that Jesus created is he was in proximity. Is that right? Excellent. Okay. I'm sorry? Meals. Meals, yes. They ate together. They shared a meal. Approachable. That's excellent. I rarely hear that term. That's a good one. Proximity. They ate meals. He was approachable. Very good. Inclusive. Very good. Inclusive. He traveled with them. They traveled together. Very good. Keep going. Spoke truth. Absolutely. Love. Who said that? Over here? Yes, love. There was love. What else? It was safe. Yeah, it was safe. Safe to talk, share what was going on. Absolutely. It was safe. How about this? Let me let me put one on there. How about confrontation? Was there confrontation? Think about that. Does it because there's confrontation, does that make an environment not relational? No, it's how we do it, isn't it? So you can have a relational environment with confrontation. It's okay. Very good. Let's maybe do one or two more. Those are great. Proximity, they ate together, approachable, inclusive. There was love. There was confrontation. There was one about truth we missed. Truth was spoken, or I don't remember. There's truth. Accountability. Very good. Can I just say follow through? There's follow through. Consistent. It's great. How are we doing, Stephen? Okay. We, we, we got those. Now, I want to shift it on you. We're going to ask it. Let's jump to that other slide. Oh, look at you. Good job. All right. Describe the environment a lost person needs in a small group. 
Let's describe that environment. Acceptance. Patience. Encouragement. Humility. Truth. Very good. Huh? Ah. Oh, it's the same list. It's the same list, isn't it? Right? Should the list be different? No. So let me go back to something we said at the very beginning. Somebody had kind of shot out there a couple things when I talked about that keep you from disciple making. Remember this? Somebody said knowledge. Somebody said confidence. Somebody said, I don't remember the exact words, probably get it wrong, the kind of education I need to know more. How much confidence, education, and knowledge do you need to create that environment? How much? Do you need a degree to do those things? Can everybody in this room, I'm not saying it's easy at times, have the ability to do those things? Yeah. It may be hard. There's certainly times when there's people that are not very lovable, including you and me, right? Sometimes it's hard to speak truth to someone. They're going to wrestle with it. Sometimes we have a hard time being humble. Sometimes it's hard. We like our little group. We like our friends. We like our people. You mean I got to include somebody new? That makes me uncomfortable. It can be hard, can't it? We can agree to that. It's difficult. But if the lists are the same and we look at it and go, <clears throat> I can do these things. I can do them. Now, I understand there's also, there, there's a skill piece to it. Well, how do I facilitate a group? And how do I do this? And, and there's things in the word. I need to understand the Bible more and more. I get it. I get it. But when you think about what Jesus did with the disciples, these are the places that he started. These are the things that he did. His default was not, <clears throat> boys, sit down, and I'm going to teach you all the original languages, and I'm going to teach you from the Old Testament, all of these things. Again, please don't hear me say that education is and teaching the Word of God from a lecture knowledge base is wrong. We need to do that. But it's not that only. On Monday, I'm sending a group of folks to Singapore to train about 65 pastors in the same thing that we're talking about today. I've been to Singapore several times. Anybody been to Singapore? Been there? So when you go to Singapore, in a lot of some of that area of Southeast Asia, there's a, <clears throat> there's a man, he's very, very well known worldwide. His name is Edmund Chan. Edmund Chan is kind of the forefront guy on what I would call educational discipleship. He's world, world known. He writes books and all this. How many of you have heard of Navigators? You heard of Navigators? It's Bible study method stuff. <clears throat> they have perfected navigators in Singapore. They're pastors. Many of them are doctorate understanding. And I'll just tell you, 
from an education knowledge base in the church, they are a hundred miles ahead of the United States from, from Bible education. I've been in their churches, many of them, worked with their leaders, worked with their people. They know the word of God from an education standpoint. But I can't tell you how many of their pastors have looked me right in the eyes and said, Brandon, man, you guys don't do what we did. Don't do what we did. Well, what is that? We put all of our emphasis on education and we have all these very intelligent, educated people that don't know how to disciple anyone. And that are not in relationship with anyone and they hide behind their education. They hide behind their degrees. Education's great. It's both and. Do you hear me in that? It's both and. That we can teach the Word of God, that we can teach and, and study it, and those things are good. But if you do not have love, then what? You're a resounding gong. If we don't love our neighbor, then, right? What does First John say? If you say you love me, but you what? Let me hear it. Then you're a what? A liar and the truth isn't in you. It has to translate. Whatever we learn educationally has to translate into our hands and feet and change us. It doesn't matter how much we learn up here if we're not changed and it doesn't translate into loving people more. That's the whole purpose of the gospel. That's the whole purpose of this. Isn't it? The whole story of this is what? Man's broken. Separated. Needs God. Needs relationship with others. Without it, you're lost. So when we go to create an environment around us and some of us feel like, well, I can't do it. I'm afraid. I don't know that I can. I'm not going to get it right. I'm not going to. No, when we look at it and go, well, can you do this? Can I be in proximity? Can I share a meal with them? Can I share my testimony? Can I talk about the scriptures that have meant a lot to me and have been transforming to me? I'm sure every one of you in here can do that. I tell the leaders at our church this and every group of leaders I've ever had. My hope always is that we're able to get to a place to where curriculum's great. I write curriculum, but that you don't need curriculum. All I need is this. And to walk with people and minister to them and, and disciple them in proximity and help them apply the word of God. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? So when we look at those lists, we want to make sure that that's where we start. And as we go and as we disciple people, we can learn skills, we can make applications, we can do those things, and that's all good. And we'll grow in our ability to make disciples. But that's our first step in doing that well and not overlooking that. And remembering, it's like I was telling you about Coach Patty she doesn't care right now about what I know about the scripture. I can quote to her all day long what the scripture says about living a homosexual lifestyle. 
Lord willing, that day will come and we'll talk about what the scripture says. But right now she's hurting and broken and needs people to walk alongside her. And then you earn the right. Imagine what the meeting would have looked like when we were when she sat down sitting across from me and I opened up and said, well, this is what the Bible says. And you're going to hell. I doubt she would have come on Thursday night. And unfortunately, a lot of times in the church, that's our first step out. And we haven't journeyed with somebody to be able to walk with them. Think about how, what Jesus' first steps out were. Come follow me. I mean, imagine if he started out with, <clears throat> you're going to be crucified upside down. You're going to be chopped in half. You're, right? You're, you're all going to lose your life. For, I, I doubt he would have had anybody sign up to go. Right? He just said, just come follow. Okay? All right, so I want to save this last time for questions, thoughts. And <clears throat> so questions and or what is something that stood out to you today that you're wrestling with, you and God? God's talking to you. He's convicting you. So it's a question or a conviction that God's doing in you. I'd love to hear some of that. Yes, sir. Evangelism is different than um, encouraging people to consider the claims of Christ and choose Christ, and that the first item on your list is that they choose to follow Christ. And so if you are trying to disciple somebody that hasn't made a choice to follow Christ, it may not be the highest and best use of your limited resources. Um, so that's what I'm, that's what I'm learning. Okay. One of the things I want to make sure I'm clear on, cause, and I may have heard you, not heard you correctly. This is something I, I, I believe very strongly. <clears throat> I believe that the Holy Spirit is drawing, Scripture says, drawing all men to himself. Do you, do, do you guys agree with that? Everybody's in a different place in that process. See, I think discipleship is, is the Lord wishes none, for, none to be lost, Correct? All I am doing is coming alongside and joining with what God's doing in that person's life. That's it. So where they're at in the process between them and God, so for example, with with Patty, I've used her example several times tonight. Is she being discipled? Yes. Is she a believer? No. Is she wanting to learn? and grow. So far, should I put my time there? Yes. Where I told you earlier about Philip, he didn't want it. What's the, I can lead a horse to water, but what? Can't make him drink. I can't force it. That's not, that's not even healthier. I can only do my part. Like you're saying, we can just do our part. That's what discipleship is. I'm joining with God and the Holy Spirit with the work he's doing in their life to help them and play my part to help them grow closer to Jesus Christ and using the word of God as our plumb line. That's essentially what it is. 
Great, great point. Good job. Somebody else? A conviction, God's working in you, or a question? I grew up in church, but never learned about discipleship until we started it here. And I didn't realize how scary it was to go without a curriculum. To go out where? Without a curriculum. Okay. Uh Like, it's just like me and God in the Bible. Like, like a lesson plan and like study guide. And like, it's scary. Yeah. And then, I don't know, it's still like a, not really a foreign concept to be in a discipleship relationship, but... It's still kind of not what I grew up with, like what you talked about, you know, in church. Like, yeah. we didn't grow up with discipleship. That's for, like, the really ultra-spiritual people, yeah. not, like, regular, normal people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and there are, there's some great, phenomenal, tons and tons of curriculum that's out there. I mean, we live in a day and age, the, the, the resources that I can pull up on this phone and, right, are incredible. Great curriculum is written out there. And, and none of that, that's, that's not wrong. But the whole notion of, man, sitting over a cup of coffee and discipling someone with just my Bible, oof, that can be scary. Sure. Yeah. It's good scary. Anybody else? A question or a conviction? Yes, over here. What was my way of learning and growing and and coming to Jesus is not necessarily going to be exactly the same for somebody else that's completely different from my personality, but somehow there's like a connection there. So just, I think, learning to not get in the way uh-huh. of, of that. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's good. Yeah. Really good. Anybody else? <clears throat> Oh, no questions. That's really good or really bad. Uh, Brandon, I have one. Yes. I have found that as I'm working with people in discipleship versus just working through a particular sermon series or a particular curriculum, the great benefit of discipleship is that it really it forces you as a discipler to recognize where the person you're working with is um, where they're at, and how you can meet them where they're at, and ask them to take next steps. Yeah. And the real safety and security that's found in curriculum and studies is that we can sit around and talk about God and talk about the Bible, and we can never talk about what's really happening in my life yeah. that I don't really want to talk about and the steps that I don't want to take. Right. But 
real discipleship gets to the heart of those things. Right. And that's, for me, been what I have seen help people grow the most is that's where discipleship does does the work that a Bible study or a curriculum will not. Have you seen that to be the case as well with people you're working with? Yeah. I'm, <clears throat> um, yes, absolutely. The, the thing in group, uh, you know, I, I, I talk about this with any time I train leaders, training, you know, part of it is the group will be as transparent as you are and as willing and as courageous as you are. And you also have to have a, um, you know, sometimes it's a little, it's a little bit of mileage with the group. You're you're earning the trust, you're earning safety. Um, you know, my men's group that meets Wednesday morning at 6am, um, those guys will say anything to each other. Um, I just gained three new guys over the last two weeks, and and um, one of the three guys is not a believer, and he was like, "This is unbelievable." I'm just sitting in this with these guys, because they'll they'll challenge each other and they'll say hard things. They'll talk about their thought life. They'll talk about pornography struggles. They'll talk about anything, and it's okay. And we'll talk about it. We're not going to hide it and pretend. And we're going to look at the Word of God and what does the Word of God say about it. And so you have that. Now, in my home group, that's couples, and it's, it's, it goes deep, but it's different. If I feel that it's really heavy and we have some guys that are struggling, I'll tell my wife before a group, look, I'm taking the guys, you're taking the ladies, and I'm going to go drill these guys. And so we'll do some different things like that. But, but yes, um, you know, I just to not be pretentious and go uh, me being able to share with the guys in my group. They don't treat me like I'm pastor Brandon when I'm in the group, I'm one of the guys in the group and they know that I struggle just like they do. And so I think for any of us in the group as being leaders are going and being real and honest, um, is important. And again, a big part of that is we live in a world today you know, I was reading some of the stats this morning and praying through coming over here. I was reading, the, I quit reading it because I just got depressed. The new stats that are out on clergy. The, the, uh, pastors are now one of the, it's in the top four um, professions of highest suicide rates. Highest addiction rates. Highest divorce rates. Why? And the number one complaint of pastors in America, number one, and it was 89% said they struggled with loneliness. I, I, I just can't even fathom that. While we've been sitting here talking, my phone's blowing up the whole time about the guys in my groups that are praying for all of you, praying for me, how'd it go? They don't know when I'm in, you doing okay? How... I've got some more people around me that know what's going on in my life than I know what to do with. That's the way it's supposed to be in the church. How is it that Christians should feel lonely? That doesn't make sense if we're applying the Bible. Now, I get we feel lonely at times, but man, we should be able to have relationships that we can go to and go, man, I'm struggling. One of my closest friends that's in ministry, he was a small groups pastor. 
was fired by his elders because he went in and told his elders that he was struggling with some depression and felt lonely. And they said, we can't have anybody in ministry that struggles with depression, and they fired him. Yeah, that'll help. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. That's what's happened in church in America today. And we go, we can't tolerate that. This has to be a place where people come to and get healthy and it's okay to struggle and talk about the issues that 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 we we deal with. Because what did Jesus say? Oh, only the what need a doctor. The sick, but the healthy, you don't need one. I want to close with this story. Um, some of you may know this um, about me, um, and, and I want to I want to share it because it's all this is about a relational environment. Um, <clears throat> uh, was uh, how our church got started was um, I started a small group, had a handful of families. And we continued to meet and pray, and, and um, we were barbecues in the backyard, and it continued to grow. And in about eight months, we were doing that, and it was growing. And I really poured all my time into about nine, nine eight, nine guys and, and some couples, and my wife and I were discipling them, and it was very, it's been great. And uh, <clears throat> our plan to, to launch um, our first service was uh, November I think it was originally was November 3rd. Well, on October 28th of 2016, so a year and a half ago, um, <clears throat> my two daughters are, um, they're playing right now as we speak. Um, they're 17 and now 16. She's almost 18. She's my oldest as a senior. Um, my, my seven or my 16 year old was one of the top recruited kids in the country. Um, she was ranked number third, number three, catcher in the United States when she was in eighth grade. Um, kids, she's really, really good. Works really hard at it. Trains. She's just a different kid. She's just kind of a, she's just a maniac. And she's very good. And um, so we were playing in that fall. And uh, they were going to a tournament in Houston. It's called the Ronald McDonald. It's the biggest tournament in the country. And all kinds of recruiters uh, from schools were there to watch her. And she was just uh, as a freshman. Um, my daughter that was a senior was close to committing to, to a couple different schools. So they left our house. They were headed to the tournament. And my wife and I are kind of about a half hour behind them. We get in our car. We're following, going to catch up to them at the tournament. And my wife gets a call. It says, your daughters have been in a car wreck. And she's like, okay. And the lady was kind of vague, but they're, we, you know, they're okay. And then a police officer gets on the phone. And says, um, you guys need to, you, are you mom? Yes. You need to go straight to Herman Memorial in the Woodlands. They're, they're ambulancing your daughters there, or your daughter there. I was like, well, where's our other daughter? Cause the, and it was real confusing. And, and she said, well, are they okay? And he said, yeah, they're okay. You just need to go to the hospital. Meet us there. And I was like, well, that's weird. And so my wife's like, well, all their gear's in the car. Can I stop and get the car, get their gear? And she said, no, you need to go straight to the hospital. So we go. And I'm expecting, you have to know my daughters, my 16, well, 15, she was 14 at the time, Olivia, she's just a maniac. And so, like, I was expecting to walk in the doors and see her standing there, furious that they're not at the tournament. 
and mad and wanting to beat her sister up. And then my oldest standing there crying because she got in a fender bender and the car's dented and all that. That's what I'm walking into. That was the feeling we got from the officer. I walk in and there's no less than two dozen police officers standing in the, in the deal. And I thought, oh my God, they killed somebody. And a woman comes up to me and she says, are you dad? And I said, yeah, I don't remember a lot of this I'm vague. She said, um, you need to come with me. And I'm going, oh, my God. I said, where's my girls? And she said, you need to come with me. And we go into this family room, and a trauma surgeon comes in, and he says, now, are both girls your daughters? And I said, yeah, my wife is freaking out. And I said, yeah, yes, we have both daughters in the wreck. And he said, okay, who's who? I said, Emma's our oldest. She's driving. Olivia's the younger. She's in the passenger. He said, okay. He said, um, Olivia is in, um, is in CAT scan, and he, she, he said um, she has probably a 3% chance to live. So she has oxygen on the brain. She has 18 skull fractures. Um, she has a double compound fractured jaw. She has a compounded sternum. And he said her chance of living is very low. He said, I need you to understand that. He said, your other daughter is in, is in surgery right now. She's having her ear reattached to her head. Okay. Whoa. I threw up. I physically threw up right there. And uh, so my daughter, my 14-year-old, suffered a um, massive, severe, um, called a um, brain shear injury, systemic brain shear injury. She She had a brain bleed and was in a coma for 21 days. And, um, ended up being in the hospital for 80 days. But she had to completely relearn to walk and talk, and she lived. That was a miracle. Um, Doctors from all over Herman Memorial in Houston would come see her because she had things like this. Both of her eardrums, she was hit so hard, it crushed any of you that know any anatomy. The little tiny bones in your ears allow you to hear. In In both of her ears, they're turned to powder. They were crushed into powder. So you should not be able to hear She'd be deaf. So they tell us, if she ever wakes up from the coma, she's going to be deaf. You need to know that, mom and dad. She will not be able to hear you. She can hear fine. The brain bleed was right in her vision center, and they said, and it was black. On the, I saw the cat scan. It was black. They said, when she wakes up, she's going to be blind. So my daughter, if I ever get her awake again, she's going to be blind and deaf. Yes, she'll be blind and deaf. You need to be prepared for that. She can see fine. That whole time when we were going through that, especially the first 21 days, I was telling myself or asking myself, can I go on? What's going to happen to my family? How can we plant a church in this? And during that time, the church grew. And the men that were in my group, I'm going to tell you about one guy. I came out the second day. I walked into the lobby, and I didn't know this guy super well. He'd been in my men's group for about seven, eight weeks. I walked out into the lobby, and he's sitting in the lobby. His name's Jim Nutt. You ever come to my church? Jim Nutt's about 6'5". He's this white, big Santa Claus beard. He's a great big guy. And he's sitting in the lobby, and I walked out, and I said, Jim, I said, what are you doing? He goes, you don't worry about me. Go back in and take care of your family. I come out like at 3 in the morning, and he's still sitting there. I said, Jim, what are you doing, man? Go home. He goes, don't you worry about me. You go back be with your family. 
the next day, I finally got to go see Olivia because I was with Emma and Olivia were at two different hospitals. Emma was in the north. Olivia was downtown at the trauma center. They had to helicopter her down there. So I finally got to go see Olivia. So I, I have somebody drive me. So they drive me down, and they were telling us, that, and even then, they're like, we don't think she's going to make it. She can't get her brain pressures under control, and she's probably not going to survive. And so they rushed me down there, and I get down there, and I walk into that waiting room, and Jim Nutt's standing there. I said, how did you even get here? How did you even know? He goes, you don't worry about that. And every time I'd see him, he's just in tears. He says, you go be with your family. That guy stayed in the waiting room. Of, of the ICUs for 72 straight hours never went home. The families around us stayed around us and walked with us through that whole thing. And were the church to us. Cared for us. And, and, and I mean, my wife and I never slept under the same roof for 80 days. Like we just traded at the hospital back and forth, back and forth. When Libby was at rehab and and all those things until she got out. Here's why I'm passionate about relational discipleship and why we do Jesus' method. It's because it's what works. It's how we get through life. I would have never, our family would have never made it through that. The church never would have been planted. And God would have had to find somebody else to reach Patty and somebody else to take care of Greg Granger's home when Hurricane Harvey hit. And now he certainly can do that. But because our church is there and our family stayed intact, because we applied these principles and lived it out, we took the word of God and made it real. And the church is growing. It's growing. It continues to grow. We branched four groups last week. We're 26 groups. We have 500 people at Easter. It's growing. Because God's methodology works. And while we're sitting here, Olivia's two for two tonight, and they're winning. She's playing. Kansas was out recruiting her two weeks ago. It's a miracle. I don't know how she did. God did a miracle. But the bigger miracle in some ways to me was watching the church be the church because I had to make the decision, made the decision six days in, God, if you take her home, I will not back down from my call. We're planting this church, whether you take her home or not. For you guys in your church, you're going to go through life's difficulties, and you have go through life's difficulties. But at the end of the day, we're called to take care of each other, aren't we? We're called to be the church. We don't go to church. We are the church. Disciple-making is who we are, and when we understand that, and the Patties and the Gregs and the community around you, when they look at you and they go, how in the world did you make it through that tragedy? The guys at ESPN called me and asked that question. How did you make it through? Real simple. Let me tell you about Jesus and tell you about his church. Well, they don't want to hear that. Right? It's because it works. It's what God calls us to. Cool? We good? You guys okay? Awesome. What I want to do is pray for you. We're going to be back at it tomorrow. And here's your assignment tonight. Okay? I kind of asked it earlier. But I want you to spend some time with the Lord tonight, personally. Just wrestle through. God, what are you wanting me to learn about being a disciple maker? 
What are you trying to teach me? Maybe some of you are journalers and you need to write it down. Maybe you need to put it in your Bible. Maybe you need to write it on your mirror. I have no idea. But God, what are you teaching me about disciple making? When we come back in the morning, we're going to talk about it. Fair? Awesome. I'm going to pray you out. Lord, thanks for tonight. We love you. And God, you're so good. And Lord, uh, following you is awesome and fun and scary and terrifying and exciting and challenging. But God, there's nothing greater. Thank you, Lord, for first loving us. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you give us a roadmap. I pray a blessing over each person that's here tonight. I pray that you would just bless them and their families and their efforts to follow you. We love you in Jesus' name, amen.